Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming here today. I know you could be at the beach or something else, but here you are. It's probably an onshore flow today, so it's cold. There you go. That's my thought about that. Glad you're here, and also welcome to those of you on our live stream. It is so good to have you with us as well, wherever it is you're worshiping this morning. Uh, We're glad you've joined us uh, for this time. I would love to have you take your Bibles, if you have one handy there, and turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Daniel, chapter 8, is where we will find ourselves today. Continuing our study, of course, through this very, very interesting book, both in terms of history and uh, prophecy. I have, uh, of course, with you all, been keeping track of, of, of things going on around us. I have been fascinated by things that people do when they think the world is about to end. And uh, I read a story this week that uh, I thought, wow, how interesting. Our good friend Isaac uh, there in the back, I know will resonate with this little story, but it's an example of something somebody does when they think the time has come. Um, Read a little story in the news, comes out of March of this year, of course, because it happened right as coronavirus was exploding around the world. But there was a Jewish guy, uh, he's anonymous, because he, anyway, you get the story. He, um, some years ago, 15 years ago, in fact, he was with a friend and he was visiting the Jerusalem Walls National Park. And there at the Jerusalem Walls National Park, he and his friends came along a pile of these um, stones. They're artifacts, but they're stones that used to be lobbed at, 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 you know, when you're taking over a place, you, you lob these big old rocks at people. It's turned out poorly, typically, if you were the, on the receiving end. But these stones were probably dating back 2,000 years to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So these are stones that, I mean, history. Well, this guy and his buddy thought they were pretty cool, and they lifted one, took it home. I mean, talk about a doorstop, a 2,000-year-old doorstop. That's pretty cool. Well, what happened in March, of course, is he was cleaning his house for Passover, removing any element of, of sin, of course. And for 15 years, he'd been cleaning around this stolen artifact. And this year, because the world was about to end, He thought, I'd better get it right. And so, to quote him, the time has come to clear my conscience. It feels that the end of the world is near. And so this year, he gave it back. It took the end of the world for him to make it right. Every other year, he cleaned around his sin. (laughs) Think about it. Well, I don't know if you have a rock at your house that you're cleaning around that doesn't belong to you and you should give back. But I'm just fascinated by the things that people do when they think the time has come. Um, Maybe there are things that you should do, too, and not wait for the time to come. But um, here we go. Daniel, of course, is a book that talks about those things, gives hints and ideas about things coming down the tracks. And this morning, we're going to come to a chapter, again, that involves a lot of history. If you loved history in school, I want you to know this is your lucky day. You are going to have a blast. If you hated history in school, please grin and bear it. It's going to be okay. We'll we'll try to make this as painless as possible, but really it's going to work out, okay? Because it involves not only history, but it involves the future. And uh, so I'm excited about all of that. And one more element, and then we'll pray and jump on it. Um, we'll We'll see in a moment that... There are some elements of this that involve evil and bad guys. And we live in a day when sometimes the the bad news gets a little overwhelming. But I want you to know that this 
this chapter and where we're going to go with it uh, indeed turns out for our good and for the glory of God. And I hope for your encouragement that history is not out of control, that history indeed is in, is, is in God's hands and his able hands. So I hope that there is encouragement for you today, even as there is for me. I want to pray for us, and we'll jump into Daniel chapter 8, okay? Father, it's so good to open the Word of God together. Um, we find information and news from a lot of different sources, but where else can we go for, for absolutely unvarnished truth but to the Word of God? And so we come here gladly and with great joy and pray that you would guide our reading and our comments and our study, uh, that it would indeed be uh, for our good and for your glory in us. So we, we welcome you now, Spirit of God, to use the Word of God however you wish in each of our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So sermon notes in front of you, you should have, I hope, found those in your bulletin. There are a number of words of review there at the top. I would love to have you go with me to that fourth arrow because I want to comment on a couple things we said last week in our introduction to biblical prophecy, how to read and understand Bible prophecy. And both of these affect our text today, and they will affect our text next week. So the sooner you get these, uh, then the, the, the better for all of us. But we mentioned last week, as we come to this prophetic part of the book, that the goal of prophecy isn't to give all the details about the future in such a way that you'd have it all figured out, and can chart it out and say, well, there, now we know everything about the future. This happens, then Thursday this, and Friday that, and then it's the end of the world. That isn't the goal of biblical prophecy. Really, as again, it's going to be in our text today, but to show the sovereignty of God over human history. It isn't so you'll get all your questions answered as much as you'd like them answered. It isn't so you'll figure it all out. That isn't it. But that you'll see the hand of God and know that he knows exactly what's going on. And that's really Really important in a day when people are trying to figure it all out. Well, good luck with that. And then second, as I comment here, this business, as we mentioned last week, of prophetic foreshortening. Cool term, I realize, but it shows up in our text today, and it will be there next week. It's the idea that many times in the Bible, there's a prophecy about a certain thing that has a near fulfillment, but there's something else in mind. And maybe even something else in mind. And you don't always know that until history unfolds, okay? So um, we commented on some of that last week. You might review some of those notes, Isaiah 61 and so on. But, but here, I think, as well in today's text. Now, uh, we mentioned last week, as we have, I think, each week, the book of Daniel, 12 chapters, uh, fits neatly into two. Okay, I know some people want to go three sections. That's fine. For me, I'm going two sections, one through six and seven through 12. Um, one through six, pretty is chronological. It's telling the story of Daniel. It's narrative. It's telling a story, well, mostly narrative. Then you come to chapter seven, and as we've noted, it switches to apocalyptic literature, which is a kind of a different style of writing, some different rules and so on. And we're in that section now. So good, good to know. Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to do a couple of things today. I'm going to break a couple of rules. Okay, once you know the rules, you can kind of break. Uh, you'll understand what I mean by that. Starting at the end. You're not supposed to do that, are you? Well, because then you find out what happened. And it's like if you started the game of Clue and said, it's the guy with the candlestick in the dining room, just saying. Well, it would ruin the whole game, wouldn't it? 
Well, we're going to do that today. And I, what I mean by that is I want to look first at the last verse in Daniel 8. It's like reading the last chapter. What's the point? Of, well, I'll tell you. I, I want you to see how Daniel feels at the end of this little party. Okay? Daniel 8's a great preaching unit, has a time signature at the beginning, a little word of introduction, and it wraps up with 27 where Daniel says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. That's how he felt about it at the end. I feel sick to my stomach, I feel awful, and I'm terribly confused. Now, I realize that that description fits some of us a good part of the time. Um, <laughs> so if, if you look at that and go, he felt fine. That's, that's Monday morning for me. I'm just saying, Daniel, prophet of God, this is important. I'm not just making fun of it. Um, it's important because Daniel received this this revelation from God, and rather than him being all chipper and dancing around saying, I got it all figured out, he didn't. He felt the weightiness and the burden of it. He didn't have it all figured out, and it weighed on his on his spirit. It was it was hard work being this business of being a prophet of God. So if I'm just saying if there are times okay, even if there are times now as you hear information about all kinds of things, if you find yourself feeling overcome, laying sick for days, um, and being appalled and not understanding things, I just want you to know you're just being like Daniel. You could have another Daniel moment, and it's going to be okay. Daniel felt that way at the end of this chapter. I just think that's very fascinating. Um, now, I, I want to go back to the beginning, and we're going we're gonna to start reading. Uh, I'll break another rule here in just a moment, but if you look at your study notes, uh, as the chapter fits into two good sections, and so that's the way I'm going to approach it, verses 1 through 14, and then 15 through the end of the chapter. And the first heading I've given it, I, I hope is an encouragement to you, powerful nations and leaders are temporary at best. We're going to see kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, leaders rise, leaders fall, and it's going to be okay because God is ruling the place. All right? So, so don't panic. Don't give up. Um, with winners and losers when it comes to, to, to nations and leaders. If you've been around, I'm not that old, right? I'm still a kid. Many of you remind me of that often, still a young whippersnapper. But in my lifetime, I have seen nations rise and fall. And even world powers that at one point were super, really, you know, right top dog or all vying for it, kind of not anymore. There's a rise and fall of nations. And we read in the book of Daniel, read about this in Isaiah, God lifts up and puts down. God lifts up and puts down. He's holding human history in his hands. So again, confidence for you, rather than thinking, oh no, um, it's out of control. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. So we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, beginning with verse 20. You see that? I'm breaking a rule. Again, I'm going toward the end of something. I'm going to the key because in a minute, we're going to start reading this amazing prophecy that is interpreted for you. It'll just save us a lot of time to know, according to verse 20, there's a ram we're going to read about with two horns. And he says, oh, that's the kings of Media and Persia. So now we know that already before we even read it. We're talking about the Medes and the Persians. And then there's a goat we're going to read about. Well, he already tells us it's Greece, the king of Greece. So we're talking about two kingdoms. Now we've read that. So we'll go back to verse one. I want to read verses one and two, make a comment. And then we'll read the rest of that section. We read together uh, God's word. Daniel 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Suda, 
Susa, rather the citadel, which is in the prophecy of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was by the Ulai Canal. Okay, we'll stop for just a moment. Um, we mentioned the chronology part, verse chapters 1 through 6. So Daniel's now telling us this vision happened back at what we would call about Daniel chapter 4. Okay, because he mentions now uh, in the third year of King uh, Belshazzar, last week, Daniel chapter 7, it was in the first year of King Belshazzar, which is about 14 years before this, or thereabouts. So this is two years later, easily a decade ago. So now he's stepping back in time to say, man, I had this amazing dream again, and I'm telling you about it now. So out of chronological order. And he, he takes this little trip. He says to Susa the citadel, interestingly, one of the key cities in the Medo-Persian Empire, and it's a little bit of a trip away. You say, well, how does he know that that's where he is? If he's seeing this in a vision, how does he know it's that? Maybe there was a sign that said, welcome to Susa the citadel. I don't know. Oh, or maybe he had traveled there. We don't know a lot about what Daniel did in his life. We know little snippets. He Maybe he took a weekend trip, uh, probably longer, 250 miles by uh, some other kind of... Uh, older means of transportation. But nonetheless, who knows? Um, but he's, he gives you a setting and in what's going on in his mind. So verse 3 then, here's what he sees. He says, I raised my eyes and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Speaking of speed here. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So if your kid ever says, are there unicorns in the Bible? You say... Well, yes, Daniel chapter 8. Well, it's sort of a unicorn. It's a unicorned goat, not a unicorned pony. But I just thought I'd point that out. It's got a single horn. Well, more on that in a minute, of course. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. He ran at him in his powerful wrath, and I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. For a moment, you remember last week I mentioned in the Bible, horn typically represented a source of power, like a king or a kingdom or something like that. It's intended to symbolize strength. So now we've got four. Now, verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? 
and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, Hebrew way of telling time, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Wow. Okay, we stop at this point. Section number one. My goodness, isn't that, isn't that, well, interesting and hard to understand. I have good news for you. In reading verses 12 to 14 in particular, Gleason Archer, Gleason Archer, who is a, a Bible commentator, uh, well-known and, and uh, many speak of him, he looks at that section and he says, this, the, this section, those few verses in particular, are the hardest in the book of Daniel to understand. So congratulations. If you look at it and go, I'm not sure I followed, that's okay. Gleason Archer doesn't get it. And if he doesn't get it, uh, my chances and yours are pretty slim. Um, so, so be encouraged. Now, several things, if I, if I may. First, at this moment, Daniel, having just received this story of goats and rams, is not sure what it's about. It's a prophecy. He doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't. He doesn't get it all figured out himself. He doesn't. And I'm not picking on prophecy conferences. I'm not. But I mentioned last week prophetic humility, the idea that you may think you have some idea, but you don't. You, you, you think you do, but you, you better hold it carefully. You know, I think if you'd asked Daniel at, at the end of verse 14, before the, he gets an interpretation from God, which you don't always get, um, if you'd asked him at the end of verse 14, so what was all that about? I got a hunch Daniel would have said, I have no idea. I don't think he would have known. I don't think he would have written a book about it and said, well, I think, no, you don't really know the details of this until history takes place. Okay? Now, for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, as noted on your, your study notes here, I'm going to give you a crash course in some things. And it makes complete sense with what happened here with the ram and the goat. Okay? Now, I mentioned that according to verse 20 and 21, that the ram with the two horns, the kings of Media and Persia, the goat is the king of Greece. Okay, track with me. Oh, please track with me. Okay? We saw last week and some weeks ago in chapter 2, this vision, the dream, remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had, the statue, and we saw four human kingdoms and then the kingdom of God breaking in. And we knew from that text that the first, the head of gold, was Babylon, because it says it in the text. You, O king, are the head of gold. So Babylon, followed by the Medes and the Persians, and that happens in the book of Daniel. Remember the end of chapter 5, when Belshazzar the king is, is, is slain and the Medes and the Persians take over? By the way, the Medes and the Persians, the, the two horns, one was higher than the other. The Persians were stronger than the Medes, but they worked together. They were kind of a united kingdom. But indeed, the Persians were stronger. So that's kind of interesting about one horn being taller. So Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, Greece, and then Rome. We saw those in chapter 2. We saw this in chapter 7. And, of course, the breaking in of the kingdom of God in that final form of Rome. So today, then, chapter 8, it's talking about these middle two. Okay? The Medes and the Persians and Greece. And there's a reason. There's a reason to focus here. It's not just giving you history. There's a reason as it relates to the future. That's why we take time with it. That's why it's in the Bible. So he gives the details on these middle two. The Medes and the Persians first took over a big piece of real estate. Verse 4, the ram charging west and north and south. No one could stand before them. The Medes and the Persians did pretty well for a while. And then along came this male goat, not with two two horns, a single horn. Who is this? Greece, 
Remember, remember the guy called, what's his name, Alexander the Not-So-Great? Well, he was pretty great for a while, but he didn't last very long. Anybody can be great for a while. Let me tell you, he, he was a pretty good guy. I mean, amazing. I mean, uh, he was a warrior. He started in his 20s, probably earlier, but he had consolidated power by his early 20s, so much so that by the time he was 32, when he died, just short of his 33rd birthday, he had succeeded in kind of taking over the known world. I mean, he was quite a guy. Can you imagine taking over the known world by the time you're 32? Huh, that's pretty good. The guy was probably pretty good with the sword, I'm guessing, and wasn't, he wasn't expecting to die. He was expecting to kind of run the place for a while. Well, interestingly, um, as I mentioned here uh, on your notes, yeah, Alexander the Great, of course, is only great for so long. Exactly. He dies at age 32, ironically, in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon, probably completely unaware that a few hundred years before, this guy named Daniel had talked about him. Isn't that interesting? The ironic parts of history. So Alexander the Great dies. And then what does it say? We're told here in the Bible that after this 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 goat um, uh, is broken, verse, verse 8, that you have four conspicuous horns. What happened in history? What happens in history? Maybe you know because you love world history. So you've got the Medes and the Persians, Alexander the Great. After Alexander dies, his, okay, tongue-in-cheek, but you'll know what I mean, his estate is in probate for four generations, 40 years. It wasn't really his estate. But because he wasn't planning to die at age 32, he didn't have a succession plan in order. He didn't. So there was not an immediate heir to the, you know, to the being in charge, the big guy. So Alexander the Great's, right out of history, his, how many? Four generals, four horns, four generals, kind of squabbled about this, didn't settle it for 40 years. Can you imagine that? So they kind of divvied up the kingdom. And, and I'm saying all this because the Bible's talking about rams and goats and things. And as history unfolded, it unfolded just like this. Who knew that God would know the whole time and could, could tell Daniel ahead of time. So the four generals, now stay with us, because there's more to come. These, these four generals kind of divvied up the place, okay? And then we're told in verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, and it begins to describe him. Wow, in such a way that you say, well, that, that's not just a normal guy. That We're talking about a bad guy. Indeed, out of those four generals, from the line of one of them, Verse 9, a specific ruler came who was not only a bad guy, get ready for this, he was, a, he was like a world-class bad guy. You know what I mean by that? There are certain bad guys whose names are just synonymous with evil, and you can go right to Adolf Hitler, Mao, uh, Pol Pot, some of these guys. You don't just say nice things about them. Uh, they were bad guys. Well, this this little particular guy, this little horn, they came out of one of the lines, the line of the Seleucids, if you keep track of the four generals, there were four. This one of them, Seleucus, one of the generals, uh, he had you know, a couple kids and so on and so on. Finally, uh, taken over the place was a guy by the name of Antiochus III, his daddy, and he had a boy, Antiochus IV, who came to power. Are you writing all this down? It's going to change your life. Counting on you taking notes. Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, he went by, God manifest, he called himself. He came to power in 175 BC. Bad guy. Bad guy. Okay? I give you some dates here on your study notes. Um, And there was about six and a half years where he really turned the screws on the Jewish people. Okay? 
uh, six and a half years, six and a third years. Guess a, a, how many, I'm using some round numbers here. Guess how many days and nights, evenings and mornings that is. Oh, for goodness sakes, verse 14. 2,300. That's about the season, if you chart it in history, where things were, were really bad for the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, again, he took that name for himself. Uh, God manifest, God with you. My goodness sakes, are you kidding me? But there were a number of years that he was kind of the big guy. And I've given you on your study notes just a brief synopsis of some of the things that he did. And I labor with this because I don't think it's just about history. I think it's about the future as well. So pay attention. Okay, what did he do that was so bad? Well, he, was, he forbade the, the reading of Scripture. That's one. He said this should be private. The law of Moses should not be read. He pushed for one religion for all. He got really upset about the idea of true truth, the idea that any one religion would be correct. Doesn't that sound interesting? Uh, the exclusivity of, of Christianity is one of the things that people push on the most today. How can you say that one truth is right? They should all be right. Well, guess what? Antiochus Epiphanes would agree with that. And he began to enforce this. He, he did things like take uh, uh, idols, false gods, and, and put them inside the Jewish temple. Uh, his, he not only put pressure on the outside, and I'll be careful how I push on this, he, he not only began to put pressure on the outside, he began to take over what happened inside. Isn't that interesting? He's a bad guy. Insofar as, as history would tell us, he, he desecrated the te- altar of the temple. And history would tell us at one point that he, you ready? He sacrificed a pig on the altar. You understand how abhorrent that would be to a Jewish crowd. An unclean animal sacrificed on your most holy altar. And it was his way of saying, I own this too. Your God, look, and what's your God doing, by the way? Apparently not a lot. I can do this. He thought he was the big guy. I mentioned that he took the name Epiphanes or God manifest. And I reference here, I just think these little connections are fun. I reference John 10, because in John 10, you read about Jesus standing um, there in the area of the temple. And it's the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, Feast of Lights, right where Antiochus Epiphanes, a couple hundred years before, who called himself God made manifest. Here's the real God with you. God among us. Here he is standing right there by the temple. The the, the one who is truth, who really was God in the flesh, is standing right there where Antiochus Epiphanes did a couple hundred years before, but the light of the world indeed had come. Now, I mentioned the Jewish festival of lights. Hanukkah is born out of this. I won't go into all the details of that, but the idea is this. And again, it's it's making sense of the text. The trampling of of the uh, of the, uh, the sanctuary takes place for this long. Then the sanctuary is restored to its rightful state. Well, what happened is, is there were some Jewish guys uh, led by um, Judas Maccabees. He was one of the Maccabees, which is a family line, uh, also called Judas the Hammer, because he led a rebel group. There was a number of these Jewish guys who said, you know what? The time for talking is done. Who wants to draw a sword? Because I will. And hands started going up. I'm giving you a, you know, you know understand. Hands started going up. He got himself a, a, like a guerrilla group. Just like out of the old movie Red Dawn from the 90s. If you ever watched that? Yeah, buddy. Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. Uh, Judas the Hammer. He led these guys and a revolt took place and blood was shed and it was not pretty for a very long time. And eventually Antiochus Epiphanes died and they were going to rededicate the temple 
and and they didn't have enough oil to run the lights, you know, for for, for the time of dedication. And this, and of course, that's where the feast of, of the festival of lights, feast of lights, comes from. Is that God? As the story goes, God sustained those lights of the candles. They continue to burn, even though we were going to run out of oil. Everybody knew it, but they didn't. And God sustained those lights. So anyway, that's a that's a bad synopsis and too brief of a synopsis of of some things in that intertestamental period. Okay, now was that the end of the story? Is this prophecy only about history? Is this bad guy only about one bad guy and then he died? Is that it? Okay, now we need to read the rest of the story. Is there more? Okay, so here we go, starting verse 15. And I think you start sniffing here a little bit. You go, hey, wait, is there more to this? And I would propose, indeed, along with the New Testament, yes, there is. There is more to this story. So then, verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. No kidding. It's my comment. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. That's the canal from verse 1 and 2. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel, Gabriel, of course, who appeared to uh, John the Baptist's dad, appeared to Mary, New Testament. Here he is. Big, big job. He came near me where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened, fell on my face. And he said to me, Understand, O son of man, watch this, that the vision is for the end, for the time of the end. I want you to watch how many references there are in this section to the end. Okay? Then he spoke to me, and I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I'll make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power, indeed. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. You say, well, if it's not by his own power, whose power will he have? And he will cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. I, Daniel, was overcome, lay sick for days. I arose, went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Wow, interesting. So Gabriel is Daniel's interpreter. And he says repeatedly four times that I noticed the vision is for the time of the end. Now, of course, you ask, the end of what? Do you mean the end of Greece? Uh, when Alexander the Great, you, you mean that? When Rome comes, you mean you mean Antiochus Epiphanes? You mean is that what you mean, or or do you mean more? And I'm going right way here to prophetic foreshortening, right? You with me on that? Where there's a there's a fulfillment. Certainly, Antiochus Epiphanes was a bad guy, and I think we're talking about him on some level. But I would suggest that there's even more. Now, a little more history. Are you ready? And different people look at some of these things and say, okay, there's the bad guy, or is this the bad guy? For example, 
Um, Antiochus Epiphanes dies. Um, Rome, of course, comes in and things like that. In, in the fullness of time, Jesus, Messiah comes. Okay? 70 AD, you remember the fall of Jerusalem. Remember I began with the story about the, the siege rocks and things like that? 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, the Roman general Titus came in and took the place down. 73 AD, Masada, kind of the end of things, if you're familiar with those elements of history. Was that, is that what it was about? Was, was that the bad guy? Or, or, or wait, are we looking still further to another bad guy? Because moving beyond Daniel to the New Testament, you will read... I give you some references here. Uh, there are three references in Daniel, 8, 13, 9, 27, 11, 31. I'll give them right here to you. That, that if you look at Matthew 24, Jesus is looking beyond Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand, then run like crazy. So he's Jesus, who's after Antiochus Epiphanes. He says, no, that, that was abomination. Pig on the altar, bad idea. But there's more. He's looking ahead. Was he looking ahead to the fall of Jerusalem? Or was he looking ahead even more? Uh, Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses, there's about 10 verses in there where he talks about this man of lawlessness yet to come. And then you get to the book of Revelation chapter 13. More about this man of lawlessness. So it's clear in the New Testament we're looking beyond Antiochus Epiphanes, near fulfillment. We're looking further to a future man of lawlessness. And it's so fascinating. I I highlighted these on purpose. Some of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did, forbidding the reading of Scripture, pushing back on the idea of true truth, not only um, putting outward pressure, moving into the inside and saying, let me tell you how you can worship until you can't. Just very fascinating things. You go, wow, that was quite a guy. To dare to call himself God made, made flesh. Wow, bad guy. And a number of other things he did that I left out that are a little more on the gruesome side. Um, truly bad guy. Truly a bad guy. And I have on your study notes this, this statement. It appears very clear that Antiochus, in Antiochus Epiphanes, you find a prototypical bad guy whose evil will surface again in the individual we call the Antichrist. Now, I, I gave you at the top of that page a quote from this guy. Some of you are familiar with John Lennox, some of you not. John Lennox is, is a professor at Oxford. Interestingly, he's a professor of mathematics. Think, well, uh, what, a, what kind of an interesting guy would that be? He's, well, he's pretty sharp. He wrote a, this, this book, one of many he's written. This is on the book of Daniel, Against the Flow, the Inspiration of Daniel in an Age of Relativism. Uh, John Lennox, not only being a good mathematics professor and a good writer, he's also well-known um, for debating publicly. It's on YouTube. You can find these. He debates some of today's biggest and best-known atheists. If you want to find somebody take on Christopher Hitchens and some of these new atheists, go to YouTube, Google John Lennox debates, and watch them. Watch them all. And you'll find him in a very gentle, British gentlemanly way, uh, take apart some of the big guys and give reasons face-to-face to say, but no, my friend, that's not true at all. And he'll, he'll discuss it. John Lennox is quite a guy, and he's the guy at the top you said. He's talking about an evil that will gestate and come to its fearful fruition in a time yet to come. And I, I think here, in terms of modern corollaries, it, it, okay, from movies, uh, Star Wars, 
If you follow the Star Wars saga, of course, you know that right when it seems like the, you know, the bad guys are gone, they're back. And they, there's, there's a return. Well, that seems to be what's happening here in Daniel chapter 8. Prophetic foreshortening. Here's a bad guy coming, but there's another bad guy who's going to come, who's going to be even worse. And the New Testament talks about this guy called the Antichrist. Well, I think that's what's happening here in the text. Now, I want to summarize, and I want to then talk about what in the world we do with this, okay? So today, you have in your crash course on history, like it or not, we've talked about the Medes and the Persians, how the Persians were the stronger of the two. Alexander the Great came in and wiped them all out, you remember? Uh, Alexander the Great died, didn't intend to, at age 32. Four generals took over, and from one of their lines came this little horn, seems to be the prototypical Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, really, really took it to the Jewish people, God's people, took it to him. A lot of bloodshed, a lot of terrible things he did. And he seems to be a prototype of evil yet to come. We see that in Matthew 24. Jesus talks about that. We see it in Second Thessalonians 2. Paul talks about it. Revelation 13, apocalyptic literature. John talks about that. And so here in the Old Testament, you find a, a look at a bad guy but they're looking ahead to future evil. So may I ask, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Is it terrifying? Is it overwhelming? When you talk about evil in the world, is it, is it, is it overwhelming to the child of God? Well, sobering, I understand. But if you look down here at your study notes, responding to God's word, I ask you a question here. As we see the reality of evil in the world, do we despair? Come on, people of God, what's the answer to that? Do we despair? Well, no. No, we don't. Why not? Because God holds history in the palm of his hand. God is the one who's guiding history. God is calling the shots. And the Bible is so clear that there is coming a day when evil will be no more. And you've got to read your Bibles to know all these things or else you too will live in fear. And I, I don't want you living like Chicken Little, believing the sky's going to fall in every day. It's, it's, you know what? Yeah, I know we live in a world where there are things going on. I got it. Okay? Read the newspaper and I watch the news. But living in despair and fear? No, I don't think so, child of God. First Corinthians 15 that big resurrection chapter, you look right there in the middle, you find a section about it. It says Jesus is going to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. You see? And you find in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that great white throne scene. Um, awesome. As, as the Ancient of Days, as Daniel would call him, sits on the throne. And it says he's so awesome from, uh, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and there's no place to hide. And death and Hades cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and all evil is vanquished, done, never to rise again. So those things are right in the Bible. So you don't, you don't have to wonder how it's all going to turn out. No, the Bible, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us. I want to go to one more text, and here is where we will kind of land things for the day. But I want to go to, to Revelation chapter 5. It's so appropriate that we celebrate communion today as we will, kind of collectively celebrating uh, the work of Christ. But Revelation chapter 5 helps us with this. It's an amazing scene right out of heaven. And I, I love to come here with great regularity. Uh, every part of the Bible, certainly, and the book of Revelation, certainly. But I, I really like chapter 5 
uh, one of many that really uh, speak to my own heart. Um, John, of course, the apostle, receiving this revelation um, of Jesus Christ, as this book is entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. He describes a scene in heaven where there's a scroll that is written front and back, sealed, and this dilemma, because in verse 2, the question is asked, who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And the answer is no one. No one No one can open the scroll. No one, no one is worthy. And then you get to verse 5, and I would just have that love to have it emblazoned on every mirror so you see it every morning, bumper sticker your car, whatever, so you'd get it and see it and believe it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold... What is it? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I go right away to the Chronicles of Narnia. When the lion roars, it's a good thing. You're not a zebra. You're a zebra. The lion roars. You're lunch. This is not it. No, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion roars, and it's Christ. And it's a symbol of power. And the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. And of course, the call here is weep no more. He's looking to this day when evil is conquered and Christ, Christ indeed, Lord of all. Now, we're going to comment on this in a few moments as we receive communion together. But over and over in this text, you find the, the term the lion, of course, and then the lamb, the lamb is represented as having been slain. When we are in heaven, overwhelmed by the presence of God, we will not have forgotten about the work of Jesus on the cross. It will be even more meaningful in that day. We will not have forgotten. If there's one place where you see the power of God and the purpose of God, it is at the cross of Jesus. If you wonder, how do, what do I hold on to in this world of, let me tell you, you hold on to Jesus. You hold on to Jesus. You hold on to him, the one who died on the cross in your place and rose from the dead. You hold on to the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what you do. Now, I ask you here, of course, on your study notes, this part called responding to God's word. May I ask you directly, whose side are you on? Are you trusting Christ as your savior? And Lord, is Christ your king? And I, it is my hope. Please hear me. Uh, Those of you present in the room, those of you watching live stream or listening later, it is my hope that on that great and final day, when we stand on the, the other shore, heaven's shore, and human history faded into the dust and evil conquered, I, I hope you're there. You. I hope you're there. Not because you've earned it, you're kind of nice, or the good outweighed the bad. None of that works. I hope you're there because you're trusting Christ as your Savior. He is the only one whose righteousness can get you into heaven itself. I hope you're trusting Christ as your Savior from sin. I'm hoping for you that on that great and final day, you're there, please, in that wonderful place where you're going to be overwhelmed for eternity by the beauty and the presence and the glory of God. I hope you'll be there. Now, I'm going to say another comment or two, but I want to pray right here, and I'll say a word or two about communion, and and we'll join together in remembering the work of Jesus and that tangible way of saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you today. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the book of Daniel and for this glimpse in Daniel 8. Yes, a, a glimpse at an evil being and 
one no doubt yet to come, it would appear. But Father, I thank you that we need not fear the evil or the evil one because the evil one has been conquered and sin and death and the grave have been conquered in the work of Jesus on the cross. I thank you for telling us about that. I thank you that this, this mighty battle unfolding in human history isn't up for grabs. It's end is sure. You are the one who wins. How we thank you for Jesus. How we thank you that together as the people of God, we can remember the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And we can celebrate it together and say, yes, yes, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you, I am. We hold on to him. Help us now to do that in this tangible way. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, down through the years, the people of God in different places, different ways, different settings have remembered Christ in receiving communion. As you know, in communion, there are two different elements, a little cracker, a little piece of some kind of bread that reminds us of the body of Christ broken for us and a cup of juice that points us to his blood shed for us on the cross. And that receiving of those elements is a, is a call for our hearts to turn to the Lord. They're not, those little elements are not saving in themselves. Christ is the one who saves. And receiving communion does not like add stars to your crown or years to your life, but it's a matter of your own heart saying, Lord Jesus, I'm remembering you today, and I thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's a process of your own heart with the Lord. And the way we're serving communion these days to avoid the passing of trays and so on, and um, we, we have three communion stations set up, and we invite those of you who know Christ as your Savior, if you'd like to participate, if this is a setting that you'd feel comfortable doing that, you're welcome to do that. And you can visit any of the three stations, pick up a little one cup with a cracker in it, one cup of juice, and come back and seat, be seated at your place again. I'll say just a couple of things. If one station runs out, visit another. And uh, there'll, be, there'll be enough here for all of us. We'll have some music playing as, as you do that, as you go serve yourself and then find your way back to your seat. I'll say just a couple of words, and then we'll remember Christ together. But I invite you now to, to receive communion. Go get those elements, and I'll talk to you again in just a moment. Many times in life, we say things like, um, I got over it, or I will get over it. Or you need to get over it. One thing I'm sure of is that when we are in God's heaven, we will never get over the work of Jesus that got us there. We're never going to get over it. Now look at this text, Revelation 5. And the descriptions, of course, are are gripping. Verse 6, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 9, they sang a new song. What did they sing? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. How come? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign On the earth, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all creation responds 
Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Over and over again throughout Revelation as here, you find worship offered to Jesus because he was slain, ransomed us to God. Over and over again, we never get over it. In fact, I suspect, uh, I've, I've heard it said, one of the things that will surprise us the most on resurrection morn, <laughs> when we truly see, is that we didn't love him more now. See, when we see the presence of God and say, this is what you purchased for me, a sinner unclean. <laughs> Can you imagine? The little cracker points us to the body of Christ broken for us. Let's remember him together. In a similar way that the bread points us to the body of Christ broken for us, the cup points us to the blood of Christ shed for us, and it's a call together. These elements are a call for us to say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for what you will do on that great and final day when you take me home. Let's remember him together. Can I ask you to stand? We want to pray together, and then I'll say just a word or two with announcements, and then we'll be done here for the day. But pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much that you tell us how the story ends. Thank you for the glory of heaven itself that we will see, not because we have ever deserved it, not for a moment, but because Christ is the one by whose atoning death in our place that we can be forgiven and clothed with the righteousness of Christ and made ready for heaven. And our Father, in these days of difficulty and at times confusion or discouragement, would you point us continually again, again, again to Christ, to Christ. Our Father, rivet our eyes on him this day. Thank you for those who are here. Encourage and bless each of us as we walk with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.